0: Thank you, Kyle. My favorite apology is, I'm sorry you took it that way, <laughs> <not an> <laughs> which is what I should follow all of my talks with, sorry you took it that way, since now I'm thinking of all of you as hungry bacteria. Um, okay, yeah, question for today, what if we began and ended with thanks? That's uh, question I want to hover in the background. What if we began and ended with thanks, or with gratitude, you could say. And, um, and it just seemed like the right time of year to turn our attention to um, the question of thanks and the question of gratitude. So I want to begin with a reading from Wendell Berry, which is in your little bulletin. So let me just read it. The pleasure of eating should be an extensive pleasure, not that of the mere gourmet, People who know the garden in which their vegetables have grown and know that the garden is healthy will remember the beauty of the growing plants. Perhaps in the dewy first light of morning, when gardens are at their best. Such a memory involves itself with the food and is one of the pleasures of eating. The knowledge of the good health of the garden relieves and frees and comforts the eater. The same goes for eating meat. The thought of the good pasture and of the calf contentedly grazing flavors the steak. Some, I know, will think it bloodthirsty or worse to eat, fellow, to eat a fellow creature you have known all its life. On the contrary, I think it means that you eat with understanding and with gratitude. A significant part of the pleasure of eating Is one's accurate consciousness of the lives of the world from which food comes. The pleasure of eating, then, may be the best available standard of our health. And this pleasure, I think, is pretty fully available. Oh, wait, I lost my place. And this pleasure, I think, is pretty fully available to the urban consumer who will make the necessary effort eating with the fullest pleasure pleasure that is that does not depend on ignorance is perhaps the profoundest enactment of our connection with the world in this pleasure we experience and celebrate our dependence and gratitude for if we are living for we are living from mystery from creatures we did not make and powers we cannot comprehend when i think of the meaning of food i always remember these lines from the poet william carlos williams which seems to me, merely honest. There is nothing to eat. Seek it where you will, but the body of the Lord. The blessed plants and the sea yield it to the imagination intact. I think William Carlos Williams is playing with the very notion of incarnation of an incarnate mystery in all things. So I want to begin with this little reading just to sort of set the stage. First of all, to give you something to ponder about what most of us did on Thursday, which is eat and experience the pleasure of eating. And it's a sort of call to consciousness, is kind of what I hear in what Wendell Berry is saying, that there's something about, there's a relationship between pleasure, gratitude, and consciousness that is available to us, and, and it raises the question of gratitude itself, and I guess I want to say two quick things about gratitude here at the beginning, because I have like five points that I want to try to get through, and um, I want to start with a definition, because it's hard to talk about something like gratitude without trying to say what we mean, and so here's um, a first attempt here. I think gratitude is a posture toward our relationships. That's what I like to say. Gratitude is a posture toward relationships in general, but to the relationships in our lives. And what do I mean by relationships? I mean things that you're related to. (laughs) Not only just like your family relationships, but your relationship with being itself and with the beings that, in this case, you eat or you pass on, like, apparently, pumpkin pie and say, nah. So it's, I'd like to say that gratitude is a, is, a, is a posture toward relationships, or I could say an, exis, an existential stance in our relationship to everything else. It's a stance we take. You could even say that re- it requires a certain action. I don't know if you're just grateful by default. I'd like to say probably not. It's, it requires some sort of act, some sort of honing of consciousness or something like conscious attention or something like a stance, taking a posture. How many of you, well, I, I was going to say how many of you don't believe in God? It would be kind of a funny thing to ask. Um, raise your hands. Um, but maybe you don't uh, you no longer adhere to sort of a a theistic framework, but you still feel this little impulse when you gather around food to say a sort of prayer. Anyone feel that impulse? Yeah, so where does that come from? And why does it feel right at times to do that? And I'd like to suggest it's not just leftover hang-ups from your religious baggage. I think there's something else at work here. And it has to do with, a posture, I'm suggesting, a posture of relatedness to things. Here's another way of saying it. We are who we are in relationship to everything else. That's the simplest way of putting it. We are who we are in relationship to everything else. Like, you are who you are in relationship to the bacteria in your gut, apparently, which is not even part of your own, you know, physical makeup. It's not part of your DNA. You're inhabited by a whole legion of bacteria, and you are who you are in relationship to everything else, including you know, the complexity of your own being and all of the many entities in your own being. Have I made sense so far? So this is just sort of uh, intro material. So I, wanna, I, I wanted to break up the question here, the conversation that, that I'd like to host, by talking about the past, by talking about our relationship with nature. I want to say a few things about science. I want to say a few things about courage. I want to say a few things about the end of life. So we'll see how far I get. So first of all, as I sort of ease into the question of the past, just hold in your mind this question for a moment. How did you get here? How did you end up in this place? And I mean like right this second. How did you end up in this room this moment in time, listening to whatever it is that I'm saying, on this particularly gray, late November day, is it November still? I just got confused, yeah, late November day, um, with the life that has unfolded, I mean, did you choose it? Were you like, this is the life that I, s- I just manifested it, I just set out, and I just knew that I'd be here? I mean, don't you, don't you feel that you're not quite sure how you ended up here? You're not even quite sure how you ended up with the people in your life, the relationships that you've had, the losses that you've had, the jobs that you've had, the jobs that you've quit, the things that you've got fired from. I mean, is this the life that you just you mapped out at 17 and you just stuck with it all these years? No, I mean, I don't know how any of us got here, really. And as a kind of, like, the preparatory ground for a stance of gratitude, I think, requires some consciousness around this question, like, did I invent my own life? You know, am I, am I the agent here, the primary actor and choice maker? And Well, it's more, it seems more complex than that, which brings us into a conversation about our past, Like, how did you end up on this continent, for example? How did you end up in this part of the world? How did you end up in living by the largest freshwater lake on this continent? I think it is, isn't it? This collection of lakes? I believe so. In the world? Yeah, it's because you set out to do that. And you're like, I just always wanted to do that. And it's mysterious and and our relationship with the past is a bit mysterious and i'm suggesting or i'm wondering how do things change when we approach the past with a certain amount of gratitude with a certain amount of conscious attention for the fact that you made it of all of the billions of possibilities in your life you're still alive <laughs> and you made it and you probably ate something and you probably drank something made from beans grown 1,700 miles from here, you know? Like, how did you plan this? So a question about our own past, and the past is very tricky, and I really appreciated Andy's um, uh, meditation, although I saw that he had a stack of papers that was like 30, you know? (laughs) So who knows? This could have been a whole teaching. Maybe we should ask him about this later. Maybe Andy could do the teaching sometime, but it was a conversation about the past. Like, and the past is complex, really. And right now, particularly in the United States, we're in a funky place when it comes to the past. A lot of people are saying, how did we get here? And what is our own history? And What is the history of the United States, and how have we treated one another, and how have we treated our neighbors, and how have we treated this land, and how have we treated the soil, and how have we treated the air? And there are a lot of complexities, and there are a lot of things to look back on with some regret. Wouldn't you agree? And that kind of thing is also quite tasty. It's like you can very quickly turn toward resentment and bitterness about the past and forget sort of the miracle that you're even here and that we do enjoy certain freedoms that your great-great-grandparents could have never cooked up in their wildest imagination. So I'm not saying erase the past by wondering about a stance of gratitude. I'm saying, no, we have to look at things that are challenging and difficult. We have to look at suffering. And we have to look at the miracle of being itself. And so I'm just raising the question, what is a sort of stance, your own stance toward your past? and even your own abilities to do certain things. You know, there's a funny line in Exodus. Um, It's right at the beginning of Exodus, and it talks about how um, Jacob and his sons ended up in in the land of Egypt and eventually became slaves. And and how they became slaves slaves is there's a a poignant line. It says, a new pharaoh arose that knew nothing about um, Joseph. A new pharaoh arose that knew nothing about Joseph. See, Joseph, at one time, back in history, saved the Egyptian people from famine. That's the story of Joseph. He's this dreamer, this wild dreamer. He has this dream about a coming famine, and and he saves the people of Egypt. So what's interesting about what's happening with the pharaoh is he forgot. He forgot his own relationship with how this strange people came into the land, and that forgetting led to tyranny. So the, the question of what we forget, the stakes are high. The book is saying if you forget how you got here and even the strange things that came into your world that made your life possible, if you forget, you're prone to tyranny. You're prone to think, I did it my way, you know, to quote whoever that is, Frank Sinatra. Okay? That's a forgetfulness. That's a deep forgetfulness. Okay, here's something about my own past. Like, what's coming out of my mouth right now? Like, are these the words of Kent? Did last night, like Andy, he have a Saturday night panic, and we're like, oh, my God, I got to talk tomorrow. Yes, that happened. And so I'm just, I'm just saying things that are mine, you know? Are they mine? So I made a list of all the people that influenced everything that I'm saying today, random, random things that I bumped into. Karen Armstrong, um, Dennis Prager, he's a conservative Jewish thinker. A woman named Christina Costa, who gave a TED Talk on gratitude a few years ago at U of M. Joanna Macy. Nate Bacon and Mary Marsden. These are my mentors at Animus, where I, I do my guide training. and I got the phrase, we are who we are in relationship to everything else, because I heard it from them. They're always saying that. We are who we are in relationship to everything. So is, is that mine? You know, And I come from like a whole line of preachers. My dad was a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. I actually don't know how far back that lineage goes. I've never really looked. But my grandpa used to ride around as an itinerant Methodist minister on his motorcycle in Northern Ireland, which is kind of funny. It's like, to be, a, to be an itinerant minister in Northern Ireland, I know you show up, have you heard about Jesus? It's like, yeah, we've been fighting about it all these years. Like, I think we've, I think we've heard about it. But just like, so I can talk. You know, is that mine? Is that my doing? Where does that come from? How far back does it go, you know? Does it go back to the northern Irish bards and storytellers, otherwise known as liars, funny liars, you know? So what is that? And did I create this? And I just started going down. And what about my own spirituality? Here's a list of people who have influenced me, Richard Rohr and Bill Plotkin and Mary Oliver and Carl Jung and... Uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, and James Hollis, and James Hillman, and Clarissa Pinkola Estes. That's all in just in the last 10 years, 15 years of my life. What am I even saying? I don't know. I'm, I'm a community. So that's, that's part of relationship with the past. Like, I'm expressing right now my gratitude to have been influenced by people who came before me and shaped their life in a certain way, and the rings in the pond extend out into my own life. Who has shaped you? I, I'm challenging you like, to think about your own past. How did you get here? And what if, at times, you don't have to like, exaggerate and, and live in a constant state of gratitude. I'm just saying, what if you turn some attention toward, all right, what are the things that I'm, I'm grateful for and what about my own past and who has influenced me? And in my mom's house there's a there's a trunk. It's about, about this big. And that, that's the trunk that came over from Ireland when my grandpa landed here um, on Ellis Island with my dad, who was fourteen years old. They just brought a trunk over, you know? That's it. You know, what a wild, you know, the ship could have went down. I don't know if you've never heard of that. What's that one giant ship that was built in Belfast that sunk? I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, there's no guarantees. You know, there are no guarantees. Okay, and what about our relationship with the natural world? So I just wanted to raise a few questions about the past. And what about the natural world? And I started thinking about, um, you know, Thanksgiving itself is trying to root us into the reality of our dependence on the natural world. It's saying you are who you are in relationship to everything else, including every single thing that you put into your mouth that you did not invent and probably you didn't grow. I grew some things that we ate, but did I grow them? You know, (laughs) was I out there under the soil like making the potatoes bigger, you know? No, I just barely watered, you know, and rarely weeded. And yet we have this kind of utter dependency on the wild world. And I think we're, I don't know, in some ways we're increasingly moving toward like, I don't mean this technically, because I'm, I, I find myself to be a deeply religious person on the one level, but culturally we're living in a, in a more of a post-religious environment. Where at least religion, as we've known it up to this point, in the, in the confines of it, they're porous in some way and they're fragmenting in other ways. And but one of the great advantages of, of religion is that it regularly put the participants into right relationship with the earth through things like prayer and ritual. And after all, Thanksgiving is a kind of ritual around prayer. And and same with Christmas and, you know, all these holidays. They're they're really earth holidays when you look deeply enough. And Passover itself in the Jewish tradition is a harvest festival and also the story of the Exodus. So in any case... um, I was thinking about the Torah itself, and the Torah says something interesting. I, I mentioned this actually a few weeks ago, but in um, Genesis chapter 1, you've, you've heard the story many times, I'm sure, but, you know, it says that um, Elohim creates the world by speaking. And so this, the speech of Elohim brings forth plants and animals and stars and the heavens and so forth. Now, what's interesting about that is what it's communicating subtly. If you ask the question, where is the word of God, what's the answer? Look around you. Every tree and flower and plant and phase of the moon. Did you see the moon phase yesterday? I don't know if it's waxing or waning, but it's, you know, it's that, I don't know what you call it, but that little sliver where you can still see the outline of the moon. Like, that's a, that's a word of God. That's an expression of the divine, of the miracle of life, if you want to, you know, pull it way back, of mystery itself, like Wendell Behr saying, we live by mystery. And so, and, religion, and Islam is the same way. I don't know if, how much you know about Islam, but in Islam, here's a saying from, from the Quran: the East and the West belong to God, wherever you look is the face of God. And Islam, even more than Judaism and Christianity, said that the word of God is in every single created um, entity. That there are two words of God. You have the Quran, which is a word of God, and you have everything else, which is a word of God. That's straight from the, the Quran. And now, I'm not asking you to adopt this, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm saying, well, what is it trying to communicate? That we are who we are in relationship to everything else, and you are not the sustainer of your own life, and you live in, with a kind of wild dependency on the earth itself. This is one of the things that I think is so ridiculous about. Mark Zuckerberg's idea of, um, of the metaverse. To me, it's as absurd. So there you are in a virtual, a virtual world, a contrived world, with little goggles on, you're going to your meetings, and you've got your little avatar, and you're going around. And, and what's going to happen after a while? I was going to say something really crass. Um, you're going to have to use the bathroom. And what's going to happen after a while? You're going to get thirsty, and you're going to have to drink from the earth herself. And it's like we can't avoid our own biological reality which connects us deeply to the earth itself. So we are who we are in relationship to everything else. And when it comes to gratitude, I think we're going to, if you're not religious, I, I challenge you to wonder about the question, well, then how do I turn my attention toward... Um, toward a posture of gratitude to the reality that I'm dependent on everything else. How are we gonna do that? Because the consequences of not doing that, I think, are quite high. What's the alternative? I don't know. I did it my way. I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. It's about me. I don't see another direction. Gratitude somehow cuts that, that, the small-minded ego down a bit. Am I making sense so far? All right, here are a few scientific facts. Um, <laughs> these are more psychological, and then I'll get to the body. But OK, what does gratitude know? This, this, this is from research studies, which after you hear them, you'll say, well, I don't know why we had to spend all that money. But um, gratitude increases positive emotions, <laughs> like your mood. OK, how do we know that? Well, Dumb studies where they found that out. Um, it decreases depression, gratitude. It decreases depression. How does it decrease depression? Well, I'll get to that in a second. In part, by releasing dopamine and serotonin, you know, the thing you pay your doctor to give you a prescription for. So, um, It increases feelings of empathy, which I think is interesting. It's like to say, I'm grateful for this turkey makes you more empathetic at your family meal, which empathy is very challenging for some of us when you're with relatives, okay? Just that simple act, it puts you in right relationship with the way things are, with the earth, with our own dependency. So what happens in the body, I already said, that when we practice, and I mean practice gratitude, it's not like, what I mean by practice gratitude, things like saying things out loud, um, or doing acts that are concrete acts of, of thanks, It releases dopamine and serotonin. It regulates stress hormones. And the newest research says something like this. It wires new neural connections to the bliss center of the brain. Okay? So you want to be more blissed out, man, you know? Get thankful, I guess. (laughs) And that's interesting that these neural pathways are shaped and formed by expressions of gratitude and thanks. So here's a a darker thought. If you don't hone these, what's your life going to look like? What is the alternative if you're not honing these neural pathways that lead to um, the bliss center and decrease stress and release serotonin and dopamine? What's the alternative? I don't know. Anxiety? Fear, depression, you know, the list goes on and on. So I know science doesn't get people excited, like, now I'm in. I have some scientific facts, you know. But it's just, it's an interesting conversation that we can, that is new in the 21st century, that these ancient spiritual practices, like, we should thank something or someone for this, or thank the thing itself for giving its life, it turns out is a lot more, Uh, deeply connected to the way our bodies and brains work. Okay, I want to say something about courage, and then I want to say something about the end of life. So, to me, it does raise a question of, of courage, because life is, in fact, full of suffering. Wouldn't you agree? It's full of hardship. It's full of losses. And it's full of unmet needs, and it's full of emotional wounds. Those are facts. Those, that's the reality of being conscious as a human being. And it seems to me that if we're to grow into our own fuller capacities as human beings, we need a conversation um, around how to face the suffering of life, the sufferings of life, with, with courage. And my guess is that it has something to do, that gratitude has something to do with that equation. Like, here's an example. If you have um, like a fear, give me a fear, like fear of darkness, thank you. If you have a fear of darkness, and let's say it's a real phobia. It's not just a fear like, I'm afraid of the dark, but it's like a kind of terror, and and it's debilitating you. And you go to see a therapist, a good therapist. First of all, the therapist is not gonna say, don't worry about it. <laughs> Leave your check at the door. It's not, or the therapist is going to say, that's silly. You know How dumb to be, you know, what an idiot afraid of the dark. You know? Unless you have a really bad therapist. That, <laughs> that's, they're not going to say something like that. Good therapy is going to walk you toward darkness, not away from it. Correct? It walks you toward darkness. Your phobias, not so they will dissipate. They will not dissipate. They're not going to tell you that right off the bat because then you won't come back again. But the truth is your fear of darkness will not go away ever, ever. What will happen is that you'll grow in courage. That's the best, most likely outcome of a good therapeutic process. So that's kind of like I'm making an analogy here that when it comes to the sufferings of life, they're not going anywhere. And you can't deny them and repress them with positive thoughts. Like, I'm just going to think positively. Like, I'm so glad I have this terminal disease. What a gift. You know, no, I'm not talking about this kind of denial. I'm talking about a certain sort of courage. And I think gratitude is the right kind of ingredient toward a a courageous life. Okay, I know life is hard, but also life is a gift. And I don't even know how I ended up here with the gifts that have come into my life and the gift of being itself. And there's something about that that strikes me as, a, as an ingredient in a more courageous life, which leads me to the end-of-life question. I don't know, I guess because I'm getting older, we're all getting older. We're all getting older at the same rate. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and I don't know, I, I feel more regularly what Jung called, what he's, what's his line, that um, Life is a luminous pause between two great mysteries, you know, between birth and death. And yeah, I can feel that in a way I couldn't feel it before when I was um, younger and, um, and it seems to me that if the science is right, that new neural grooves are possible, and our ancient religious uh, postures toward um, life itself. Are teaching something, some, something to us about the importance of gratitude. That when it comes to end of life, this seems like um, an important posture and an important practice. How do you want your remaining years to be? What? How do you want? How do you want them to be? And um, what is your stance or posture? And I'm not talking about those final moments. Like I, I know this. Like even from my my own dad my own dad's death, and from talking with so many people um, about those end-of-life moments, you know, they're always full of surprises. Like the person, sometimes it's the person that you think is most likely to just welcome the mystery of death sometimes is the one that rages in the final moment. And sometimes it's the other way around. The person that you think there's, they're just going to fight this to the better, bitter end is you know, stumbles into a kind of unexpected serenity. You know what I'm talking about? So, death is strange like that, and it's like, what's there starts to come forth. Like, I don't know, like, maybe it's a psychological way of putting it, is like, the ego and who we think we are gets kind of porous, and all kinds of deeper things start welling up. And I'm not saying any of us can do it well. Like, Um, Or do it right is probably the best way to say it. No, it's not about doing it right. But I do wonder, when I think about the gifts of gratitude, I do want to be the kind of person that is grateful for my own life as I age, as I approach the end of life. I want to be able to say, God, yeah, I screwed some things up, and... Also, what a gift. I'm so glad I was here rather than not here. And I'm so glad you were here rather than not in my life. I'm so glad I got to experience and taste the mysteries and complexities of life itself. And, and it seems to me that if you don't start practicing that now, I'm talking to myself, those neural pathways are not going to be well formed. You've probably been with people who, in that in that the luminous pause between two great mysteries find themselves in final moments of resentment and bitterness and blame. And in a way, I don't blame someone for that. I think, God, that's just sad. You know, there's a kind of grief that I think arises in that. So in no way am I blaming, but I'm just asking us the question. All right. Um if part of being a conscious human being is being conscious of our own mortality, what is our relationship with gratitude, how might our relationship with gratitude shape our approach to our own end of life? Have I made sense in terms of the question that I'm asking? Okay, let me look at my notes and see if I said anything I wanted to say. Okay, let me end with the lines of William Carlos Williams. There is nothing to eat but the body of the Lord. I'm going to interpret this. There's nothing to eat but the mystery of everything, (laughs) the body of the mysteriousness of being itself. Seek it where you will. The blessed plants and the sea yield it to the imagination intact. Now, one final thing before I go. I don't think gratitude can be practiced without a more conscious relationship with an object, (laughs) with something specific to be grateful for. So I want you you to close your eyes for one minute and just sink into the feeling of your own body for a moment. Like, here I am in this place at this moment in time at this moment of history and at this stage of my own life and and without any effort just allow things to arise in your imagination to your imagination still intact and that you feel specifically grateful for let those things come What is it? Who is it? What sorts of things arise when you activate the question of your own gratitude? And here's what I invite you to do. To leave this place, and if there's a specific action that you might be invited to take, around expressing this gratitude, I invite you to do so. Find a way to make this uh, more concrete and real. And trust that the magic of your own neural grooves will be shaped in the process. Thanks for listening.